Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. In 2016, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to a trio of European scientists for their design and synthesis of molecular machines. Doctors Ben Farinha, Sir J. Fraser Stoddart, and Jean-Pierre Sauvage shared the prize. In the five years since the award, their recognition has stimulated progress with molecular machines around the world. That operative word, stimulate, is where we begin to tie photonics into this celebrated area of chemistry. Light-activated molecular machines as well as molecular motors, hold implications throughout biophotonics. Applications are prevalent in drug delivery, photopharmacology, applied spectroscopy, and biosensing. Beyond biophotonics, anywhere a molecule does work, a light-powered molecular mechanism can be a driving force. Human and even robot interactions with responsive functional materials, interactions in organic semiconductors, optoelectronics, and test and measurement are among the areas in which molecular motors and machines can be found. These applications and others were covered at the Molecular and Nano Machines Conference at Photonics West 2021. In our first segment, news editor Jake Saltzman speaks with Dr. Yvonne Aperhamian of Dartmouth College Department of Chemistry. Dr. Aperhamian's research group works with molecular switches, fluorophores, and adaptive materials. The group collaborates with biologists, physicists, and clinicians to bring its machines into the world of photonics. Later, we're joined by Dr. Nick Vamivakis, Professor of Quantum Optics and Quantum Physics in the University of Rochester's Institute of Optics. Dr. Vamivakis discusses the state of the country's quantum workforce, next steps to enable its growth, and ways to bridge a training and development gap. I'm Joel Williams. Here's Jake Saltzman with Dartmouth's Dr. Ivan Aperhamian. Your work, Ivan, really focuses on the development of what are described as molecular switches. So I think we need to start with some definitions for our listeners. Can you define for us the difference between a molecular motor and a molecular machine? And then also tell us what a molecular switch is, just so we know. I'll start from the switch because that's, I think, the easier system to synthesize and make. So the name is literally coming from us being able to switch a molecule. And by switch a molecule, I mean we're changing some type of a property in this molecule using an external stimulus. So imagine you going to the light switch, right? You are the stimulus. You're basically pushing up, right? That's basically what you're doing and you're turning the light on using that switch. So literally, this is what we're trying to do on a molecular level. We're trying to use a stimulus to change a property in the molecule that we can take advantage of. And of course, in the same way, there has to be another stimulus that basically would turn the light off, right? So that's basically pushing it down. And you have to basically introduce another stimulus to make the molecule go back to its original form. So now you can basically stop the process that you started. Now, in certain cases, if you can make this switch rotate, for example, and it's easier to understand in a rotation in one direction versus randomly, it becomes a motor. So you just basically have a molecule rotating in basically 360 degrees, let's say clockwise, that becomes a motor. Now, if you take this motor and you basically use it in a 
system that can produce work, then it becomes a machine. For our purposes here, certainly photonics media, we're focusing on light-activated molecular motors, molecular sure. machines. Yeah, and, and again, the stimulus can be anything, and light That's is right. very, very easy to use because it is clean, right? When you do chemical switching, for example, you have side products, and then you have to think about how to deal with the side products. But when you use light, it is clean. It just basically excites molecules. The molecule does whatever it needs to be doing. And then you basically, at most, release some of the light energy as energy, like a heat energy, I mean, and that's the end of it. One of the things that makes a conversation about molecular machines through a photonics lens so worthwhile, I think, is that we're talking about capturing elements of many of the, the distinct technologies that we cover, right? We're talking about chemicals. We're talking about biophotonics, drug delivery. There are some, some nanophotonics implications to be sure, materials, biometrology. Like, it's all here, right? So aside from the definition of the technology that really necessitates this degree of multidisciplinary collaboration, why is that so important, right? Because we're working with researchers and those from industry from all over the place. Why is that so important for this distinct area of work? So let's see, like I work in solution most of the time, for example, we make our switches go and basically change the structure and we have a particular function. But for me to be able to translate this molecular motion, which is like sub-nanometer level motion to something on the microscopic level that, for example, can take light energy and convert some type of a polymer so it will basically autonomously move, right? This is necessitates me taking my molecules from the solution, being able to put this in a polymer matrix, being able to arrange this in a polymer matrix, and then build this polymer matrix in such a way that we're going to optimize the power output. Me, as a chemist, might be able to do some of this, but in order to translate this to the later on application, we'll need engineers to be able to optimize the function of that muscle. What I just basically described is a, is a light-activated muscle, for example. If you want to do something in the basically in a cell, now we need help from people in biology, for example. If you want to do something in basically drug design, now you need clinicians to be able to take this switch which with the help of the biology, basically researchers was maybe translated into a cell and then now take this to basically something much, much larger in the body and, and try to do drug tests. So the molecules we play around most of the time in the field is in the solution to be able to go basically broaden the horizons of the applications. We need to be able to collaborate with a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds and disciplines to be able to eventually basically uh, tap into the to the potential of this field. We mentioned it in our intro. Molecular machines hold applications beyond biophotonics. In the Molecular Nanomachines Conference at Photonics West 2021, sessions explored materials processing, telecommunications, and displays. Two particularly serviceable applications today involve energy storage and self-healing polymers. Right. And so we've set this up a couple of ways, right? We're, we're talking through a photonics lens, right? Like light activation. Uh, and we've also sort of framed this conversation, and it may be a mistake, uh, to be honest with you, through a biophotonics lens, you know, through drug delivery and, and drug discovery. But there are other, uh, a wide range of applications. So you talk about some of those perhaps non-traditional, uh, you bring in your work with fluorophores if you want, because there are other applications throughout sure, photonics. Sure, sure. There's a lot of things. Yeah, there's a lot of bio applications and drug delivery. We can talk about them as well. But for example, the molecular muscle I just described now, right? The idea over here is to take light energy and transfer this to basically to store this energy and then transfer it to a mechanical motion, right? So that's one thing you can do. 
Uh, there's some basically researchers who are looking at, again, taking light energy and storing it in the molecule so it can be released whenever you want. And now you're basically talking about energy storage, right, which is, might be helpful down the road when we need more energy to basically supply different devices. There is, for example, transient lenses, right? The transient lenses, some of them are commercial, where you basically go outside and basically your glasses change color. That involves some switches changing their structure and changing their basically uh, optical properties. Self-healing polymers. So there's these ideas where you can basically go and paint your car with a certain dye. And then if somebody comes and scratches it, there's a switch that can react with the environment and automatically heal the polymer. Then you don't see the scratch, right? So there's a lot of different things you can do with these molecular switches. Let's talk about photopharmacology, right? Because I, you know, I don't sure. want to just skim over drug delivery. That is a, a phenomenal area of, of research and a hugely important one as well. Um, you know, I suppose my question is, what's going on there? Uh, you know, through your line of work, tell us about uh, the implications. Well, it's, it's it's a very interesting concept. The idea is that you, you have a drug and then you put a switch on it, right? And the idea is that this drug in a particular form is not going to be active anymore. And then you come from outside and shine light on this. So this is where the photo is coming. And now once you basically shine light, you change the structure of the switch and the drug becomes active. Why is this exciting? There's a lot of different things. So for example, if you think about it, like you have some type of a cancer drug and you put the switch on it, right? And you give this drug to a patient. This will go through the body, right? And if the drug is in the off state, it's not going to do anything, right? It's not going to harm the healthy cells, which is what usually most cancer therapy does. It kills the healthy cells and the cancer cells. And this is why uh, chemotherapy causes a lot of basically side effects. So if you want to mitigate those side effects, you just basically put the switch on the drug, it goes to your body, and now you can bring an external light source. And the idea is that you can put this external light source where the cancer is basically spread, and the drug will be only activated where the light is hitting. Okay, so this is basically external targeted delivery of the drug, and anywhere else the drug is inactive. So this should mitigate a lot of the issues with cancer uh, therapy, for example, but you can do this for anything. Like if you want basically pain medicine, for example, and you don't want basically people to get uh, uh, addicted to opioids, maybe if you basically can change the dosage, for example, with light externally, that might be a very good thing as well. Of course, there's a lot of interesting things. And, and we go back to what you were asking earlier on, like light penetration through the skin is problematic. You have to have to be at certain wavelengths. Most likely you want to be in the visible and the red and near-infrared light, so you can basically do the therapy externally. If you want to do this internally, now you basically need fiber optics to go into the body and to the particular place where you want to shine the light. And now we as chemists cannot really do this. We need to partner with people who know how to do these things. And this is where the multidisciplinary approach uh, is needed. More than four years after molecular machinists took home the Nobel Prize in chemistry, questions remained about the ability of the technology to find its application. In response, Dr. Abrahamian authored an encompassing paper titled The Future of Molecular Machines. The work appeared in the journal American Chemical Society Central Sciences in March 2020. In it, Dr. Abrahamian identified significant accomplishments in the field to date and asks if the scientific community is asking the right questions.
I mentioned the 2020 ACS Central Science paper, the future of molecular machines a moment ago. Right? That was your work, right? What made 2020 the right time to author that paper? Because that is a, that's a daunting title, a daunting thing to take on. You're looking at the whole future of these machines. A lot of different things. So as I mentioned, in 2016, the field got, basically, we received, like, not we, but people who worked in the, received a Nobel Prize, which is also basically an interesting thing. It's Nobel Prizes, and it's a whole week of celebration. So I was actually trying to find this section. So there's this Nobel Minds, and after you get the Nobel Prize and everything, the celebration, there's a huge celebration, there's an after party, and so on and so forth, and then... Uh, in the afternoon after the celebrations, there's basically this thing called Nobel Minds. It's basically, it's a round table with the Nobel laureates, and I think the BBC does this, right? And, and one of the questions that, that the Nobel laureates, especially the molecular machinists, were, were asked is like, what's the application? Right? And, and this is something that I was trying to basically address in, in my perspective as well. And, and this question has been, like, we've been constantly asked this question, what's the application and what's the application? And I think at one point, I, I just got tired of this question. <laughs> uh, I was about to ask it, good. <laughs> no, no, it's, the reality is, yes, we, we all understand that at the end of it, there has to be an application. But one of the, the message I was trying to push is that we are all aware of it. We are all working towards that application, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Because as I explained, this is not something that we're going to just be able to do by ourselves in a lab. This is going to need basically a broad uh, coalition of people from different disciplines to be able to push this technology forward. Now, not in all the time. In some cases, as I mentioned earlier on with the photopharmacology, this is already being done in the startup, uh, basically, uh, sphere. And, and there is some progress in it as well. So why 2020? I wrote this because I was on sabbatical at the Humboldt Fellowship. I was sitting in Berlin. I had some time to think about these problems. And I thought it's about time that we basically put something out for us as a community to start thinking about, first of all, what the molecular machine is, because there's some uh, disagreement of what the molecular machine is. And then what are the challenges that we need to address to be able to get to the level that we have applications? So I was trying to basically start this roadmap and a conversation in the community that, okay, it's almost five years since the Nobel Prize, and we have to have this conversation. We have to start thinking about these problems because at the end of it, we need to have a product in like the next 10, 15 years so we can, to a certain extent, justify to the taxpayers uh, why are they funding this type of a research? Now, on the other hand, we are basically are interested in the basic science, right? There's a lot of different things that can come out of this research, which is not necessarily what you're looking for, right? So that's, that's the good thing about science as well. Like sometimes you go and do something randomly because of your, your passion to basic science and the results might be useful in 10, 20 years, 30 years, and you can do things with it that you never really thought about. So that's another part of this. And I think that people should understand that science is not instantaneous. There's no instantaneous gratification. Sometimes the, the impact of science will only be clear like in 20, 30, 40 years. And, and people should remember that as well. So I have it here in my notes. I was going to read from that paper, right? And in the paper, you call it the looming question of artificial molecular machines, right? When will there be real life applications? And now I'll paraphrase, you know, what you're saying is, you know, we as the practitioners, some fundamental science here to be done first, right? Sure. Let, let's, let's identify and answer some of these fundamental basic science questions before we, we overthink this, right? What are some of those basic scientific questions that, uh, that you're focused on now? 
as I said, all of this field relies on the fact that we have this molecular level motion and we can control a molecular mo level motion, right? So you're basically flipping a part of a molecule. Now, the question is, how do you amplify this to something useful on the microscopic level? One way to do this, as I mentioned earlier, you can try to put this in different types of polymers, but in order to make this process basically uh, efficient, all of these switches or machines need to be aligned in a very particular way, very similar to what's happening in our muscles. And then these fibers need to be basically assembled into bundles. And these bundles also have to be basically arranged in a very particular way. There has to be directionality. And the idea with all of this is that if you have this long range order, and this is important in general, that that's, that's the idea, long range order, then this small molecular level motion is gonna be amplified to the extent of microscopic level event. And, and by the way, this is literally what is happening every time you move a muscle, right? So there's these very, very, very tiny machines, biological machines, which are doing small motions, but because they are assembled in a very well and directed and precise way, you can basically bend your arm and you can lift a lot of things, heavy things heavier than you are, right? So, so this is where this idea is coming from. So another thing is how to make molecules talk to each other. So if you want something biologically relevant, you have to be able to make molecules talk to each other. And the question is how to go around doing that. So yeah, there's a lot of other stuff as well. How do you get like signals out of these molecules if you want to do something as a readout, for example? How do you optimize the switching process itself? Because ideally, for example, if you want a solar energy storage system, right? You want to basically absorb as much as the light possible and your quantum yield, which is basically the amount of light absorbed basically and how much of the process it's driving has to be as high as possible, right? So how do you go and optimize the efficiency of these molecular switches, right? So there's, there's a lot of different things that need to be done to be able to get to this level where like I can give you a device which I'm sure you're going to be able to use thousands of times without it breaking down. So that, that's the whole, like if your molecule breaks down after five cycles, no one is going to go and buy this technology. Unless this is, I don't know, very, 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 very cheap. And uh, basically you use it once and you throw it away, which is also another possibility. It's time for the Luminary Minute, a segment where Photonics Media looks back at a pivotal figure in the history of optical and photonic science. This episode, we'll be taking a look at one of the earliest figures in optics, Euclid. Born around 300 BCE in Alexandria, Egypt, Euclid was the most prominent mathematician of Greco-Roman antiquity. His best-known work is Elements, a treatise foundational to the field of geometry. His work Optics also dealt largely with geometry and was among the first mathematical interrogations of vision and light. The work deals largely in logical conjecture and deductive reasoning. In optics, Euclid asserts that rays are emitted from the eyes onto objects whose visual properties are then determined by how the visual rays struck them. While fundamentally flawed in many of its conclusions, the work was essential for the advancement of the science, inspiring thinkers such as Ptolemy and Ibn al-Haytham, as well as spurring advancements in art during the Renaissance by artists such as Filippo Brunelleschi and Albrecht Durer, who pioneered linear perspective. Join Photonics Media October 26th through 28th for the inaugural Biophotonics Conference. 
View a comprehensive program of more than 25 sessions, including topics ranging from flow cytometry, microscopy, spectroscopy, OCT, to medical lasers. Applications discussed will range from the detection of cancer and viruses, to the analysis of blood and tissue, to diagnostics that enable the imaging of brain functioning. Registration is free for all guests. More info and registration at photonics.com. There is no shortage of quantum innovation happening around the world. Capturing that innovation and folding it into industry has emerged as a challenge. Industry itself, institutions of higher learning, and government are working to bridge the gap between the needs of a workforce on the rise and those equipped to occupy it. Our next guest is uniquely qualified to shed light on that topic. As a professor of quantum optics and quantum physics in the University of Rochester's Institute of Optics, Nick Vamavakis works face-to-face -face with the next and current generations of quantum research talent. As the college's Dean of Graduate Education and Postdoctoral Affairs, he's also responsible for ensuring capable minds are put into positions to achieve success. Our interview starts with a deep look at what and who are occupying today's quantum workforce. So we're, we're speaking through the lens of something new, something that we're building here when we talk about the quantum workforce, um, but we're not necessarily starting from scratch here in 21, and that's thanks to higher education programs, thanks to initiatives, some of them federally funded and others. How evolved or how mature is what we might consider the quantum workforce in 2021? In terms of maturity, probably the quantum workforce is like a tween, maybe. Uh, we're certainly very top heavy right now, meaning that we have like, we've already trained a good number of PhD and postdoc types. They are really already heavily involved in everything. And so we have a lot, you know, I, I think we have a fairly good number of those individuals, uh, but if we kind of go down the education ladder, I think that's where we're lacking still quite a bit. I mean, there are, there are some pockets of programs, specifically undergraduate programs that have concentrations in quantum engineering or quantum technology, but I would say across the entire like higher ed landscape, that's sort of atypical. And so right now, because of some of these federal initiatives that you've mentioned, but all of this enthusiasm and opportunity presented by quantum technology, there is a lot of new programming starting. Uh, I'm aware of new master's programs that are starting, concentrations within undergraduate degrees, certificates for quantum engineering and quantum technology, and a variety of other kind of credentialing for undergraduates that really allow them to demonstrate that they have at least a little bit of content knowledge when it comes to quantum. Uh, and then even moving a bit further down, community colleges are, are playing a little bit of a role in this. And there's discussions about what kind of skills technicians would have to have if they were going to be supporting some kind of quantum science or quantum technology project for a company. So all of these are important words, right? Certificate, master's degree, master's, yep. coll community college, right? And so I'm curious if you can do a mashup for us. Can you pair some of the opportunities available to members of to the, the workforce to the different yeah. professional titles they may be able to obtain? Yeah, I mean, so definitely each, each kind of degree level provides a different entry point into the workforce. And if someone, let's start down at the associate's degree level, uh, someone who had an associate's degree that maybe had a bit of a focus on quantum technology would definitely have uh, targeted expertise in some laboratory skill, be it optics, maybe electronics, mechanical engineering, vacuum engineering. And this, this training would support the running and maintaining of quantum hardware, typically under the direction of someone who maybe has a little bit more training. Uh, and then moving up that that ladder, if you're like a freshly minted undergrad or master's student, you know, you probably have a little bit more content knowledge about 
quantum mechanics, quantum information science, quantum technology, certainly not, not at the level of a, a PhD student, but you, you know, maybe have taken a course or two in it. Uh, you'll have certainly laboratory skills. I mean, I know that a number of positions expect individuals that are showing up to, to have some lab skills uh, associated with their degree. And then lastly, you know, the PhD, as we said, these, these folks are really in deep knowledge of their respective discipline. Uh, if they're a theorist, they're up to, you know, up to date on the, the tools of the trade. If they're an experimentalist, they know about all the widgets and the hardware and can kind of build up a lab from scratch themselves and get the whole operation running. If the tone and verbiage of the interview sound familiar, it's because they are. Shared similarities exist between the need to build and nurture a quantum workforce and the need to continue to develop an optics workforce. It's especially significant through regions of the country like Western New York. A key difference, though, is the age of the two workforces. We asked if one could serve as a template for the other. So you're in Rochester, and certainly I do want to draw some parallels and maybe mm-hmm. some some separate this a little bit from the optics workforce that we've talked yep. about so much, not just on the podcast, mm-hmm. but but in our print publications too. You, know, you need different levels to create a workforce, to create an established yep. workforce. And so it makes sense in, in any industry, in any field, the top tier positions are typically going to go, are going to recruit the highest level PhD students. Is there something in the quantum workforce that in the eyes of employers maybe currently restricts some of these positions to a top tier of applicants? And I suppose my question is, is there in your opinion a path that can be charted to open up some of these really coveted new emerging positions to master's and bachelor level graduates? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly I, I think that, you know, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned optics. Here in Rochester, we have, uh, you know, the, the entire pipeline laid out. There is opportunities for students who are in high school, students in community colleges, students who go to the, the universities within Rochester to get degrees at all different levels in optics and then go out and find a job once they have them. And yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, as you said, at the moment, there is a sense that there is a high level of training that is needed for uh, an individual to take part in the quantum technology workforce. But you know, I, I, I don't think that that necessarily is the case. And in fact, a lot of the training we already do at the different levels of education are positioning people to participate. Now, the, the, and so, so, what, so what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the electronics we meant, just mentioned, uh, the optics skills you might learn, mechanical engineering, tools, computer coding, for example, statistical, all, all of these things that, that you learn as part of your education, let's call them like cl- classical tools, are equally important for, the, for, for quantum technology. And so we do, I, mean, I, I hear from employers that these are the things that they, that they need folks to be trained in so that they can help move forward quantum projects that they have going on at their company. You know, this next question sort of frames the optics workforce that we know so well as the, the gold standard. And that may not be the case for the quantum workforce, right? You're building something new. There's no, there's nothing prerequisite that says we need to follow the path of the optics workforce. But can you compare and contrast what's going on in quantum with what's happened, what's happening in optics? Everything is sort of built out already in optics for us. And that's really, and to be honest, I, I do think that is the right blueprint. And I do think that that'll work for quantum technology. What is interesting though, is because of the breadth of quantum technology, uh, optics is also kind of one piece of a bigger puzzle, if you like. And so what needs to happen in the quantum technology workforce development program is to really figure out how, as we were just talking about these 
other levels of education, be it even high school, community college, undergraduate programs, how they infuse training in education and quantum to support needs of industry, right? So that they we can send students out, they can they can have impact. But in contrast, right, with the with the optics situation, these students need to know more than optics, right? They're gonna have to, if there's someone who's in the lab, they're not just gonna be able to work with lasers and, and light detectors. They're gonna have to, you know, maybe have a bit more training in electrical engineering or a bit more training in uh, material science, for example, if they're a hardware person. You're an educator, right? You're a dean. I don't know if our listeners know that. You, you're very much an educator. Can you take us inside some of the dialogue that educators like yourselves, as well as people who are you know, very much connected to industry, are having to ensure that, you know, on the one hand, institutions can deliver the right education, but on the other, that industry can influence this education to ensure that this really remains a, a two-way street? Yeah, so you're definitely right. Education institutions running open loop doesn't really work well. It's not necessarily in the student's best interest, right? We're trying to help students find careers. Uh, and so definitely ongoing dialogue communication, as you say, is essential uh, for this to work. And, and it happens at all levels. So it happens federally. There is a quantum economic and development consortium that has brought together university and industry folks so that there can be a kind of shared understanding as what is needed and what we can deliver. It also happens locally. Many departments, for example, the program I'm here in Rochester in optics, we have an industrial associates program that brings together 40 or 45 companies twice a year, and we, and we talk with them about their needs and what we're delivering. Uh, and so what, what comes out of these discussions is just basically, you know, we continuously refine our curriculums to make sure that we have within them not only what we consider sort of the foundational knowledge, but also that the newest tech needs are also with it within this training so that the students that leave have been exposed to what's going to make them attractive to employ- employers. And, and I do want to reemphasize with something I did say before. A lot of the training that we hear that companies want, students are, in some sense, already already getting that training in electronics, that training in computer coding, statistical analysis of data. These again, these classical tools uh, are things students are already getting at the university, and it's just making sure that we can now contextualize that with some of the quantum technology and, and quantum mechanics education that has to happen. And that's what we're working on. We also hear that. Industry folks want problem solvers, right? They want people who can think, solve problems. And that's what we, you know, that's what we're in the education world. That's what we're trying to do at all different levels, right? We're trying to, to help people become critical thinkers. And so that's a valuable skill that students will leave with, even if it isn't, right, exactly training in quantum technology so that they did show up to a new position at a company that they could be trained into the needs of that company because they're, they, you know, they've already demonstrated that they can, they can be, a, be an effective critical thinker. Even in discussion about the quantum workforce, it can't be ignored that quantum research is booming. Dr. Vamivakis is part of that, thanks to DOE funding awarded to University of Rochester researchers in July. As part of a multidisciplinary collaboration, Dr. Vamivakis has been enlisted to apply his expertise in quantum metrology and quantum electrodynamics. The work is part of a larger project that aims to stabilize quantum states of matter at room temperature. One of the particularly dynamic realities of, of the quantum field is that you're bringing together experts in hardware and software. When you do that, right, you're combining experts in chemistry and optics and mm-hmm. physics. And within that materials was one that you mentioned. Uh, many distinct sciences. Shouldn't put a, a cap on it. That's also true on the research side, and especially for you. Can you talk a little bit about what you're working on uh, at the University of Rochester? I know you have some DOE-funded work that uh, you and a team are, are engaged in. Yeah, so the research lab I, I have at the U of R, we, we work really condensed matter physics, quantum optics, nanophotonics, and 
we we do some uh, some of the work you were just mentioning actually is brings together folks that do optics, folks that do material science, and folks that do chemistry. And, and the goal of this work is to really come up with a platform to enable new types of chemical reactivity. Uh, and so uh, basically for a chemical process to take place, that requires energy. Uh, there's a cottage industry of chemistry called photochemistry, where basically you shine light on a molecule or some chemical reactants, and you can turn things on and off. Uh, and, and that's very powerful, but the, the light and the, and the chemistry part are distinct there. And this project we have and where, where it really engages quantum technology is we want to take the things that the chemistry happens with, with it has these sort of fixed energy scales that things can operate across. We want to put these into a structure that can trap light. All right, so we have the chemistry stuff and the structure that traps light. And if you do this in just the right way, the landscape of possibilities or landscape of chemical reactivities that are available dramatically change. And so the, the hope and the opportunity and the potential here is that by, by leaning on something called quantum electrodynamics, all right, and how that interacts with these, these chemical agents, that we can create new possibilities for chemical processes and allow new things to take place that weren't previously allowed with just the bare chemical reactants not engaging this photonic structure. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings@photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.